going on digital wildcatters welcome to another week of bde big digital energy got the full crew in here with us except uh we got the digital version of kirk i mean we're living in the future here we got kirk on the computer over here so he's been calling in from the beach house in nantucket but now we can actually see his uh his ugly mug on on the computer with us so <laughs> kirk <laughs> The real deal. And I and I promise next week, audience, we'll actually get the filters we used to use on him when he was in the <laughs> studio, and we'll get it put on that. We need to get a uh, cutout of Kirk to sit over here in this uh, in this chair to, to fill them for him. But anyways. This I saw- is what my wife got me for. So I'll just, uh, maybe you can just show, maybe you can just do, I'll just be that. <laughs> Yeah, no, I was running through uh I was running through the pitch deck the other day and Julie saw that picture. She's like, What's up with that picture? I was like, I don't know, but <laughs> Kirk. Dude, it's a it's Nantucket, it's a whaling community, like captain's the highest level on the island. If you captain one of those ships and you know, for those Trekkies, which I wasn't, I was a Star Wars guy, but Captain Kirk, I mean, come on, guys. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't. It all makes sense. Sorry, I As I feel Sorry, like I we're con- going where no man has gone before. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't make so. all those connections. I apologize. <laughs> all right. What do we the, got the on the original oil? What do we got on the uh, agenda today? I saw a rundown come through, but um, who wants to who wants to take the lead on it? Kirk, Mark, why don't, why don't right. you kick us off with uh, with the first item? I mean, I I the fact that Mark, you connect me to Doomberg, his his if you don't subscribe to Doomberg, you should. He wrote a great article over the weekend called stuck in the middle with you really talking, kicking off talking about Norway. And, and so one thing that's interesting about Norway, if you ever been there, it's, it's a very clean country. 90% of their electricity comes from carbon free hydropower. They've got over 1700 hydroelectric dams and over a thousand water reservoirs. So, um, it's real interesting. And they have so much backup power. They supply equivalent to 70% of its annual consumption just in backup. So they naturally export a lot of their power to other nations in Europe because they have so much excess. Um, what is interesting, though, is that um, because of this, what is known as the resource curse, like countries that are rich in resources, if you if you don't sort of put when times are good, if you don't put money away into like a a uh, pension fund, which the Norwegians did, they have a government pension fund global that is now one point three six trillion dollars, which is equivalent to about two hundred and fifty thousand dollars per person in Norway. So I think what Doomberg was just highlighting is like, this is the most renewable country there is. However, interestingly enough, most of their money has comes from their huge oil reserves in the North Sea. Mm-hmm. And they also consume a lot of oil. I did not realize this, but in 2020, they consumed uh, over 100 million barrels, which doesn't seem like a lot compared to the United States. But if you look at it a per person basis, Norwegians consume 18.7 barrels per person and we consume about 21 barrels per person. So um, I'm shocked that the Norwegians burn so much oil, but uh, Mark, I know there's some other great pieces coming out of that article. I'm curious where all of that oil is used. I remember I picked up one of my coworkers um, and he's from Norway and I picked him up in a Ford expedition from the airport 
and he could just not believe how big a Ford Expedition was. He's like, this thing's like a fucking boat. He's like, how much do these things cost? And well, like, just couldn't believe how big the cars were here. And so, um, well, here's the deal: is they've gone to I think last few years ninety some odd percent electric vehicle sales. Yeah, I think it's seventy five percent of their existing car fleet though is internal combustion engines. Bringing up just the whole point of when we build a car today, it lasts freaking forever. Mm-hmm. And, and so, yeah. And if it doesn't last here, another point. Uh, that was made is that, you know, our end of life in the West, in the U S ends up being the beginning of life for the same vehicle that is exported to mostly developing countries where the life of that ice vehicle, largely the ice vehicle is extended unless, you know, for some reason it's been totaled yeah, or I mean, whatnot. You live here in Texas, you see <laughs> cars being towed down to Mexico all the time. I remember someone had tweeted a while back. It's like, Hey, what's the deal with all these cars being towed? on the interstate in Texas. And it's like, yeah, they're all being towed down to Mexico. And I mean, these are like really run down ice vehicles. You look at the Middle East, I think one of the best advertisements ever for Toyota is anytime um, you see terrorist cells, they're always running, you know, mid nineties Toyota pickup trucks. Like they don't even have parts available for those and they're still running. And well, and we need to get to Cuba because we've had the embargo since whatever (laughs) the sixties and supposedly Cuba is all 1950s U S uh, U.S. They have so much. They have so many good wrench guys down there. Uh, Yeah, yeah. I was down there about four years ago when the window was open, and um, those vehicles are still in operation because of a lot of Russian components. Uh, So yeah, yeah. I've heard like I've heard like the shells of those cars. Like you have the shell, essentially the body, but the the engines are just kind of a mishmash. So so back to the I think the larger point of what Doomberg was uh, describing is that Norway presents as near perfect of an electric transformation or electrification as you can find anywhere. Yet we're, anywhere. we're still seeing several years into it, you know, 90% of their power is hydro. The other 10% is quote unquote renewables. They've got a lot of surplus clean power, et cetera. They're still consuming a tremendous amount of hydrocarbon. Well, that's for- a, I'm just like, I'm super confused though. Um, I love how you put it on a per, per, per person basis, Kirk, because you said it was, uh, what do you say? It was 21 barrels, uh, per American. And then basically 19 versus 21 barrels. Yeah. I mean, 18.7 versus 21.4. Yeah. I mean, you're looking at a, a pretty <laughs> level, use on a per person basis. And so I'm trying to figure out where that, where that usage is coming from. If the majority of their electric vehicles are, or vehicle sales are electric vehicles. Um, if their power generation is coming from hydro, it's like, where is that oil being used? It's a lot of water around Norway as well. Yeah. A lot of boats. I think what's interesting is, and, and I think why Doomberg wrote this article, because the IEA, forecast has come out for sort of the midterm view of oil and gas and and doomberg even quoted which i remember when kathy wood the founder and ceo of arc invest made a great tweet in july of 2020 she said quote oil demand has probably hit a secular peak last year and thanks to evs now 
is in secular decline. Though ARC has no formal forecast, I believe that oil prices are on their way back to $12, the level reached after the 1973 oil cartel crisis, or lower now that EVs are taking off, end quote. So, an, so I an think Doomberg's rolling his eyes and just saying, this is ridiculous. I mean, well, the other thing absolutely Doomberg's, got her face ripped off by that quote. Um, <laughs> so she put it as, out. <laughs> as she should. The other point Doomberg makes is, one, we talked about it earlier, just the embedded base of internal combustion engines. And actually, even though EV cars are still you know 90% of sales there, the 10% of internal combustion engine sales is more than the decline in you know internal mm. combustion engines going off the road so you're still increasing the number of internal combustion engines there despite all the the electric vehicle sales the other thing is you know gasoline and oil are not exactly the same gasoline's a byproduct of oil we have a lot of byproducts of oil right yeah. and Doomberg makes the point of whatever comes out of that barrel we're going to find somewhere to use it and sell it like yeah. 90 some odd percent of the roads in America Hell are yeah. asphalt, right? Yeah. Byproduct of oil. So even if we stop using gasoline in the future, we're still going to be using oil products. Well, and, yeah. and we've talked about it before too. We're going to make electric roads, it. Chuck. We're going to be on a race, remember those track. <laughs> it's addressed in the piece, which those is- Those are local like cars, you know? <laughs> <laughs> there's an, there's an explosion. trying to make a point. <laughs> there's an explosion in mining if this uh, global market penetration of EVs continues and all things battery and electrification. Well, mining is largely driven by diesel. Uh, I didn't see a quantification of what kind of the end game state would be for, you know, the green, the fully green transition to EVs and batteries. But that, that, Incremental diesel demand that comes with that is not trivial. So, yeah, you're not plugging into an electric socket in the middle of the Congo to dig out your precious metals, right? You want to hear a I funny? Mean, you want to hear a funny story about roads and talking about tar? We were in Midland last week for Energy Tech Night, and we're coming in from Big Lake, and they're doing some construction on the road. And all of a sudden, there's this coil tubing truck in front of me, or nitrogen truck, and stuff starts flying out from it. I'm like, what the hell is it dropping off? This is what was happening is the sun is melting the road and this coiled truck is literally ripping the tar up and ripping the road off chunks of the road. And when we were stopping, Damn. you could just see the tar just, I mean, gooey, just stuck between uh, the truck tire and the road. And anyways, for miles, he's just going down this road. I mean, just tearing up this brand new road that they built. And one of the guys that's holding the sign, we finally passed by him and he's just like, he's looking at it. And then you can just see him, his eyes go all the way down the road and, Instantly, he just realizes that this truck just completely <laughs> fucked this road that they were building. Um, so, anyways, that was, uh, you know, took our team and said, like, yeah, that's how hot it gets out in West Texas. Just literally starts melting the roads. So, yeah, I'm going to, but I'm pretty fascinated by this. Uh, what I love about energy is that every once in a while you get it, you get a point made like this. It's like, wow, I didn't even think about that because I know Norway is um, an oil state in terms of production, but I've, known that they've been really advanced when it comes to electrification, but I didn't know that their oil consumption was still that high um, on a per person basis. And so that's, I mean, it's a pretty compelling argument for. Well, it's, it's, it's that I think the argument is just, okay, everybody that's pushing electrification. Why is this not going to happen everywhere else? Yeah. You know? Yeah. And if so, it comes back to the point I always try to make here is, 
okay, maybe electric vehicles are marginally better for the environment, et cetera. But is it, is it worth the trillions or could we do better things with the trillions? Because at the end of the day, there's only so much money we can spend on this. Mm-hmm. You know, pick your battles. Well, I want to ask you boys a question because maybe I'm in a conspiracy theorist to some degree after watching Joe Rogan and <laughs> and Robert Kennedy Jr. And I just see things in a little bit of a jaded light. Um, but I read the IEA forecast and it seems like they're projecting. They're not forecasting. They're projecting. I, I work for an executive uh earlier in my career. um, And he told me, and I was in charge of forecasting demand for computer sales. And he says, Kirk, we don't forecast, we project. Like you tell us what we're going to do and we'll go figure out how to do it. So it almost looks like the IA is doing that because they're predicting demand for transport fuels derived from oil, such as gasoline, will be the first to peak. And they're saying it's going to peak this decade. And it's, and it's accelerated by COVID-19 pandemic. And now you tell me what this means. The energy crisis triggered by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Tell me why the energy crisis of Russia and Ukraine has anything to do with people going away from oil. Well, one, they have that backwards. The Russian-Ukraine war wasn't a catalyst for an energy crisis. I think that that energy policy allowed for the Russian invasion. Um, so anyways, um, but I'm highly skeptical of any forecast projections, whatever you want to call it from them, because one, I don't think that government bodies or just society as a whole actually understands how much energy we are going to need for some of the technological, um, advancements that are happening right now in particular, um, computational power for artificial intelligence, machine learning, Bitcoin mining, you know, the last few years, everyone the Xbox over, network. Yeah. The Xbox network, you know, the last few years, everyone's been bashing Bitcoin mining for its power consumption. And you know, Chuck, I've been there like, Hey, what about the Xbox network? What about all this computational power for machine learning? <laughs> and now you're starting to really see like people on Twitter, like, Holy shit, this is going to take so much energy. Now you want to talk about space exploration. How are we ever going to be a multi-planet, uh, species and go colonize. We don't Mars. talk about that. If, I just think that energy demand has the potential to be infinite. Um, and I don't think that there is this cap on it. And as long as that Y axis keeps scaling up of energy demand, oil and gas is going to have to be a part of that. And that also kind of terrifies me, you know, just for the future because oil and gas, at least to our knowledge is a finite resource. And so, um, it's, you know, it it's all finite even you know the the raw materials in the green supply chain we've we've seen and talked about mining stories where there's more intensive methods of refining and processing minerals from degrading mm-hmm. ore quality in copper and nickel for example the reason they're have, having to get into nastier processes right and and the most fundamental of all of what you just said about energy growth, energy demand growth, uh, being virtually infinite, you know, between now and 2050, we add another 1.6 billion people to the planet. And that all comes from the developing world. And most of it comes from, I think five or eight countries in Africa. And so those that are in energy poverty, I don't believe are going to be happy with status quo. They're going to be looking for that higher level 
standard of living attainment. And so you, you have this kind of ambient upward pressure on overall energy demand. And I think because of the scale, the scalability and the transportability, we, we just have to be more pragmatic about how we're going to meet all that demand, all that new demand that's coming on top of the base demand. And it's getting, you know, it's getting harder and harder to, to find and maintain production as well. So yeah, we well, don't, we don't want 120 million barrel a day world right around the corner, but. Well, yeah. and I think it's essential that the Western world's answer to the developing world is not let them eat cake. But that's what we're doing right now. Hey, y'all need to drive electric vehicles. I know they cost more. Hey, y'all have to be in energy poverty because we already got ours. If that's going to be our answer, that is not going to lead to a happy world. Yeah. You know, I think. Well, if you read the tea leaves on the IEA, they say that that even countries like China will see a significant slowdown in their appetite for crude before the end of the decade. That's laughable with India becoming the main driver for oil growth. So they're throwing India under the bus, <laughs> which is interesting because this week, the India's power minister came out accusing the West of hypocrisy over energy transition. Raj Kumar Singh is accusing us for the hypocrisy for aggressively phasing out coal while doing the same for, well, while not doing the same for fossil fuels. And then he went on and said something that I thought was super funny. He says, he criticized rich countries for not fulfilling their pledge to provide $100 billion per year in climate finance to developing nations. So it almost seems like the IA is sort of the mouthpiece of these rich industrialized countries. And it's a war between those that have already made it to those that want to make it. And that it's real interesting as you see this play out. Well, and, and I don't and, know if you guys and, and not to be outdone, Go ahead. Uh, the UN Secretary, uh, Secretary General Guterres was out last week saying on Thursday that it wasn't a fossil fuel emissions issue. It was fossil fuels themselves and getting a little bit more strident on actually keeping it in the ground. Coal, what, coal oil, and natural gas. What did that actually mean, though? He's like, it's not fossil fuel emissions, it's fossil fuels themselves. Like, what the fuck does that actually mean? Well, it's, it's a, not you, it's me. <laughs> We're breaking up. <laughs> like, that's, you know, I, I, that just kind of like reminded me, it's, I think Chuck and I talked about this once, that even if we completely figured out direct air capture and we developed the technology to have neutral carbon emissions, people would still hate fossil fuels just because it's fossil fuels. It doesn't even matter if we can negate all the negative um, side effects or second order effects. It's just, if it's fossil fuels, it's fossil fuels. So you hear a quote like that and he's like, well, it's not even the fossil fuels emissions, it's fossil fuels themselves. It's not only the UN, and, and we talked about Asia, but let's go over to Europe for a minute. Poland has been trying to extend sub subsidies for their coal power plants until 2028. And they're doing that because they want a steady energy supply when other sources are unavailable. But ministers from Luxembourg, Spain, and Germany have been saying that's bullshit. <laughs> so this is like, this is a massive, there are, it's 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 not a war, but there's a lot of debate happening over the haves and haves nots. Poland's just trying to be smart. I don't know what the rest of Europe is thinking. I mean, Germany, Luxembourg, and Spain. What are they thinking? Turning off subsidies um, because they're already struggling with power. Yeah, Poland's sitting there with Russia, 
next door and they're not going to want to be without power. Well, I was going to say, I mean, if you just look at historic events over the last 100 to 150 years, I mean, there's a reason that Poland wants to be smart about everything because history hasn't typically been kind uh, to them uh, based on where they sit on a geographical uh premise so yeah i'm sure they're like yeah we want secure energy because we don't want to get screwed by russia we don't want to get screwed by germany you know mark you brought up a point talking about population growth and uh i tagged you guys on this and on twitter but there was a newspaper headline that said kids are cute but they're not really eco-friendly and (laughs) (laughs) this is uh this is why I hate the term decarbonization. Um, like I know a lot of people don't use the term decarbonization. Um, you know, they use it just in terms of talking about clean energy or energy transition. But I was like, you can take decarbonization to the extreme and to the point of where it's like, hey, we just can't have humans here. And I know that sounds like conspiracy theorist tinfoil hat, like Kirk was saying earlier. But I mean, there's newspaper headlines right there suggesting it i love it because my kids will sit there and i've said this a million times on the podcast but it bears repeating on the off chance one of my kids actually listens to this one day but you know my kids have lived the greatest life on the planet because of hydrocarbons and you ask them tomorrow hey you want to vote to get rid of it oh yeah dad we got to get rid of hydrocarbons they do it tomorrow i'm going to come back and say it's y'all Y'all aren't eco-friendly. <laughs> yeah. The children, it's not us. It's the you. children that aren't eco-friendly. <laughs> yeah. I bet, Chuck, your kids would never vote to eliminate hydrocarbons if you kept your plane. Yeah, that's true. Now, poor, <laughs> ch- poor Rich Chuck could have kept it. Poor Chuck can't, now can't, can't have an electric that. plane. I love Airplane Chuck. By the way, your podcast was so good. Ah, thanks, you man. Had your, your, uh, uh, priest on and he called you airplane Chuck or uh, airplane or, rich or, or you were plane air, rich. Yeah. You were plane like, rich airplane rich. I was like, <laughs> yeah, you're airplane rich. Well, you were, you were, you were kind. And I appreciate the, the note you sent. It was, it was actually pretty cool. I had dinner with dad last night for father's day. And dad said, Hey, I watched that last, uh, couple of nights ago and I actually learned stuff about you. So oh, anyway, that's cool. That was cool. So, Shell, what's your... So did I, Chuck. Oh, well, thanks. So, Kirk, what's your guy at Shell doing now? I think he's being a baller. I mean, I'm like, he's he's dropping mics left and right. But basically, he's come out and said he's going to maintain stable oil and gas production while raising the bar for investments in low-carbon alternatives. So, he plans to distribute 40% of its cash flows to investors Increase their natural gas business, which I told one of your good friends, Chuck, that that was going to be an absolute thing to bet on and prioritize steady oil flows for the next decade. So, I mean, what YL is saying is, you know, if renewables are going to come into our portfolio, the bar is higher because when I was working at Shell, our bar was pretty damn low. Um, Not that I was for pretty damn low. I'm, I'm a high bar guy, but uh, just saying overall, um, of course, you should all believe that. <laughs> but um, he did also hint at kind of where they're maybe focusing on the transition. He says, well, renewable energy options like wind and solar have lower returns on investment compared to fossil fuels by far, by the way. Promising markets include biofuels, green hydrogen, and carbon capture and storage. So Expect maybe Shell to play in those areas, similar to where Exxon has been very strategic. If they're going to make investments, they're going to do it in areas that um, are 
strategic for their business, but also high return. I got a question. I got a question um, for you, Kirk. Um, so Shell CEO mm -hmm. saying, Hey, we are going to continue to invest in oil and gas. We're going to raise the bar for renewables. Um, does that sound like toxic petromasculinity to you? <laughs> Damn, dude. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> I think you should tweet that because I've already, I'm already in trouble by their uh, guys inside of Shell because I said that Shell is going to move to Houston. So um, I think we should tweet that. That's hilarious. Yeah, he is a total petromasculine guy. Not, not disclosing um, anything that I was sworn to secrecy on, but I was in a group that might have found some of your comments interesting, Kirk, and I let slip your whole thing about Screw Shell Plaza in Houston. Let's go Shell Plaza in New Orleans. They found that very funny. <laughs> you mean I have a lot of haters out there? Chuck? No, not haters. It's better than not, being in the middle. Not, not haters uh, at all. I didn't mean to imply that. Yeah. I was just trying to be careful on who you, I was are, talking are to. Theme of the weekend? Are you stuck in the middle? <laughs> there all, we go. All I hear from this conversation is that people listen to BDE and are taking our considerations. Um, so that's all I hear. Kirk was talking about RFK on Joe Rogan. I mean, we're we're getting to that level here pretty soon, I assume. All right. The guy may be crazy. I mean, RFK Mar may be crazy and all that. But, I mean, given what happened to his dad and his uncle, I actually find him relatively <sighs> sane, given that. Oh, that's actually a good point. You I, know? I never thought about that. That's a I mean, good point. You, you, you literally have had governmental commissions trying to determine whether the Cubans, the mafia, or anyone killed your uncle – your dad, Sir, Sirhan Sirhan may have had help. I mean, that would drive me a little crazy and make me be kind of skeptical of government and institutions. No, 100%. I actually didn't think about it. He has a condition in his throat that is de 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 degenerate or whatever the right medical phrase is. But he sounds like he's shaky, but that's his mind is sharp. And if you actually listen to him, whether you agree with his politics or not, he's he 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 has sound arguments. I find him relatively very interesting. You know, I mean, the thing, the thing I hate him. about this whole saga that's going on on Twitter for the Joe Rogan podcast is the Doctor Peter uh, is his last name Hotz or but it, I don't know yes. how to pronounce it. He's over at Texas Children's Hospital. No, no, that's what I was getting at. I like I'm just. Embarrassed that he lives here in Houston as a representation. Of I'm embarrassed Houston. he's going to go on Rogan and do this instead of Chuck Yates needs a job. <laughs> that's where that's where the real debate should be. Well, happening. he's resisting pretty mightily and um, not engaging with you know conspiracy theorists is really the pushback. And there's the you know predictable ad hominem attacks. But there's a parallel in the climate debate that started with individual appearances on Joe Rogan. One was Andrew Dessler, who is head of the the climate department at Texas A&M, and Dr. Stephen Coonan, who wrote Unsettled and has you know, been all over the spectrum in terms of his place in the whole climate scientific uh, debate and analysis. And they were really talking past one another on their separate podcast with Rogan. They ended up and I think I've sent it around to you guys. They ended up in a in a long form style debate with the Soho Forum last yeah. September, and yeah. that debate is quite illuminating. And it was you know a presentation of facts and evidence and opinion followed by a rebuttal. I heard Coons ripped him apart. What's that? I said I heard uh, Coons ripped him apart. Coonan, yeah. Uh, sorry, yeah. 
Yeah, he did. I mean, if you if you look at the Kunin came from a place in talking about data and conclusions straight from the IPCC, which is widely believed, at least in executive summary, to be pointing to this kind of red alert type of of posture. But if you if you dig down and you look at some of the evidence and take a very really evidence and 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 scientifically rigorous approach to understanding the the data in the report, it's not that at all. And so he was confronted with the other side arguing on the basis of very emotionally charged Rolling Stone headlines, which were literally part of the slides that Dessler presented as as facts and evidence in this in this debate. And so <clears throat> that long form was, you know, if you can if you can stand uh, to to watch the whole thing yeah. just because of the length of it is I think the right approach where we get out and, and have um, a full opportunity <coughs> to make the case on either side. Yeah. You know, I feel for like Joe Rogan, Joe Rogan gets a ton of hate. He's like, Oh, he has this podcast and he brings certain people on. But to your point, it's like you get two people of opposing views on different shows and they're talking past each other. Joe Rogan says, Hey, let's get, both of you on a show together and can actually we'll go till we're done. Yeah. We're we'll, not, we'll, we're not we'll 30 minute crossfire on CNN. Yeah. We we'll, yell we'll at air it out all right here. And I just like, it doesn't matter if we're talking about vaccines or we're talking about climate change. And this episode's definitely getting flagged for false information on yeah. YouTube. Um, but <laughs> it's like, why can't we have scientific conversations back and forth debate and, you know, a doctor or any climate change scientist says, no, I won't get on there and debate a conspiracy theorist when it's not conspiracy theories. Well, it's just one, one, one of history's greatest physicists, theoretical physicist, Richard Feynman, who was actually a junior physicist on the Manhattan Project. One of one of my favorite quotes of his, and he's got a lot of them. There's there's actually a Twitter thread that you can follow that is is really based in Feynman's quotes is science is the, um, how was it put is the, um, belief in the ignorance of experts. Oh, that's think good about stuff. That. Cause you know, the whole thing that bothers me about whether we're talking vaccines, climate change, I have always believed that the observation of the event, anyone on the planet ought to be able to see, i.e., the apple fell out of the tree. Now we need Newton to explain there's this concept called gravity. He's the scientist. He explains why, but we all see the apple fall. We ought to be able to see all of the data and see the trends. Maybe science needs to explain why those trends are happening, but I have yet to kind of see the, and I need to dig in. So this is some ignorance on my part, but I actually want to see the underlying data that says, okay, this is climate change. Because all we ever hear is the science is settled. But I'm like, just show me the actual data. Yeah, you know what's Because at the end of the day. That's at, right, Chuck. At the end of the day, we're talking over the last 150 years, the temperature's up a degree and a half, maybe two degrees. But in 1850, that's the lowest the temperature's been in the last 10,000 years. Yeah, you know, this you know? happens in all scientific communities, though, even in oil and gas. You have Society of Petroleum Engineers, and there's this uh, gentleman, I can't remember his name, I'd have to ask uh, John over there. He's told me all about the story, but he has, um, he 
has thesis that goes against uh, conventional wisdom uh, or um, that's based around something around fracking. Anyways, and he's written, you know, 40 white papers on it and it goes against one of the the uh, chair's core beliefs. And so they just ostracized this guy, like got rid of him. And I mean, he stands up at SPE events. It's like, why are you all suppressing me? Why are you making me be quiet? And there's just no forum for debate on a very scientific matter. And so, and these are people that are all in oil and gas and quote unquote on the, on the same team, but it becomes this, uh, you have these layers of bureaucracy and for lack of a better term, it's just a dick measuring contest between these guys and they just suppress any real scientific debate or conversations. And well, cynically, it has a lot to do with the adage of follow the money. Yeah. Right. No, no, that's exactly, yeah. that's, a, yeah, that's, absolutely. Exactly, that's exactly right. But so, you know, it's so, funny because that's, I mean, if, if you're not, if, if you're not, you know, if you, if you're passionate about a position and, and really believe that the best information and the best data wins, I, I have a comment on my Twitter profile that says, good data is the antidote for bi- uh, for bias, right? So it it filters out as much bias as possible, but there's still unknowns. And you certainly have intuitive leans because of your life experience and your frame of reference. But if you're passionate about one position on something that is hugely scientific, like climate change or vaccines, et cetera, and you are unwilling to go through that educational process to really resolve in your own mind. And, you know, we, we're, we're not all expert scientists, right? But a consideration and a translation of the information in, in a debate format, if you're not willing to put in that time, that's on you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But if you think, if you think about it in many ways, people, it's like politics, you know, most people's politics are very similar to their parents and, and, and there's not a whole lot of logic there. It just happens. You know, Dr. Holtz or Professor Holtz, the, the vaccine doctor that Rogan's talking about, his whole job is about making vaccines. So when you ask him, do you think vaccine, everyone needs a vaccine? He says, yes. That's how he makes money. That's its whole life. It's like asking a barber if you need a haircut. The answer is always yes. Well, I I got in trouble during my during my painful divorce. I asked a therapist. Some crazy quack was like, you know, your children need therapy. And I said, well, let me ask you a question. Does everyone need therapy? She goes, yes. (laughs) I was like, well, there you go. It's you're 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 paid to give therapy. Of course, you think everyone needs therapy. It's similar to climate. We were meeting, especially a lot of these young kids who have been indoctrinated early. As Joe Rogan said, on his, you know, I saw one of his uh, clips. He's like, look, I just took it. You know, I saw a few headlines. I just assumed this is the facts until I started researching about the vaccine. But when you talk to people about climate, it's not really data they're, that they don't want to have the debate because it's all, they've already made up their mind that everything is bad. Fossil fuel is bad. It's all about climate. And that's their mission in life. And it's like, how are you going to unwind that? How are you going to tell someone that, hey, everything you ever believed is wrong, start over? It's really hard for people to do. Yeah, I heard this uh, story, and I think it was it was on this uh, show, and the show is about physics. And 
anyways, it goes back into um, the ancient astronomers like Galileo. And anyways, before Galileo, there was some astronomer and he actually didn't have a way to observe this, but he suggested that maybe there were multiple universes. And anyways, the church stoned him to death for suggesting that. And then Galileo comes along and um, actually observes these things. And anyways, uh, he discovers this constellation of stars and he's he's poor. He's he's a scientist, but he has no way of making money. And he ends up telling the king that, hey, there's these three stars that are put in the sky after you and your your brothers. And anyways, long story short, it ends up getting put on a salary. And this is how he started getting his uh, science and research funded. But it's funny, you go back to, you hey. know, I mean, you go back to those times and you still saw the same thing about, um, it, you know, just research being incentivized and, and misaligned um, due to financial uh, reasons. But to think that that doesn't happen today is um, pretty, pretty ignorant. Well, the, the, the close here on actual observation and then looking, watch, looking at the data to, to get better. Joe Montana, arguably the greatest quarterback that ever lived, certainly in the discussion, top five. Man, what, what, he had so much great timing. Yeah. <laughs> so pretty. Yeah, no, I mean, arguably the greatest. Uh, Steve Mariucci became the offensive coordinator at the uh, 49ers, sat down with Joe and said, okay, let's talk about how we're going to play next season. They went through – Joe laid out, you know, here's what I like to do. Here's the best. Mariucci came back, um, uh, you know, a week later with film. And of the plays that, that Joe liked to run, if you eliminated two out of the top four, those were where 85% of his interceptions were. <laughs> and so Steve wow. just had had the video. He said, Hey, we called this play here interception, you know, and all yeah. that eliminated it. Uh, the next, he, so they eliminated those two plays. That's all they did. Eliminated those two plays the next year, Montana threw four interceptions and that was it. That's so funny so, because, uh, and he didn't know, you this know, is, Chuck, that sounds like a great idea, but don't do that in relationships. This is completely <laughs> unrelated, but my favorite take during the whole work from home craze was people that were working from home saying that they were more productive. I'm like productive in whose terms? Like productive for you as an individual because you get to do all the things that you want to do. Because your laundry's or, done. Yeah, yeah. Or productive for the company. And so anyways, um, funny to hear that story about Joe Montana. Right. Y'all talk Stevie Nicks. I'm, I I actually skipped the UK point because uh, okay. the, the girlfriend's British and I don't want to get bashed. What about Stevie Nicks? These two. What are we talking about Stevie Nicks? These two have a Stevie Nicks love affair, so... No finger of the no, week. This well, week. Holly started. This is Mark. This is all Mark, but I do have some data about Stevie Nicks. <laughs> okay. All right, guys. You I don't know some, where we're going with this. Show I want to hear it. I'll, I'll set it up. Yeah. Why did Stevie Nicks come up? Yeah. Thank you, Mark. Well, you were you were eventually on the thread, but I think it was yeah. Saturday night. Tweeted out. Why is uh, who's who is the hottest female singer, and why is it Olivia Newton John? You know, just a kind of a baiting. Is. <laughs> and you saw Greece. We go down <laughs> a few replies, and the next comment was something about the ethereal nature of her voice. And so I felt compelled to respond with, I'll see your ethereal and raise you 10x ethereals and posted a, um, a, a little video clip of Stevie with 
her tambourine. I saw Stevie Nicks in a concert once. Yeah, and then then I learned that you were a big fan, and she's not. So that's you're a fan that's of Stevie Nicks, Kirk. I do like Stevie Nicks. So I was at my dad took me to a Tom Petty concert one time, and Stevie Nicks just randomly came out, and so oh. I got to I got to see her. And you'd hate me because I had like no appreciation hey, for think? it. Like I don't really. I know like one one Stevie. Stevie Nicks wanted to be a heartbreaker. <laughs> Leaving Fleetwood Mac for the Heartbreakers. So, do you really have data on Stevie? Did you come prepared to this conversation with some data, Kirk? I mean. I want to be a little bit prepared, but um, you know that she was inducted in the Hall of Fame twice. I, I didn't know that. She was first as a member of Fleetwood Mac in 1998, and then as a solo artist in 2019. Damn, that's pretty baller. I mean, that's pretty good. I, I'm frustrated because a lot of my favorite 80s hairband guys will never get into the Hall of Fame because most Hall of Fame voters hate the 80s hairband guys. Yeah. But Stevie Nicks has been in twice. Who's at the top of your list from 80s hair bands that should I'm be I'm actually in? surprised that Chuck didn't know that that fact. I did not know that fact on Stevie Nicks. I, my favorite Stevie Nicks, before we go to 80s hair band, Kirk Loves, um, my favorite Stevie Nicks trivia is that Lindsey Buckingham and Stevie Nicks are dating. They break up. So he writes the song, You Can Go Your Own Way, which is a little backhanded slap at Stevie made her play it every night in concert with Fleetwood Mac. I, thought, I always thought that was kind of cool. All right, we're 40 minutes into the okay. show. Kirk, if Wait, you want to... One, other, one you, other twist. It's ironic that Mike Campbell, after Tom Petty died, ended up playing with, with Fleetwood Mac. So oh, there, there you, you go, go, full circle. All right, lay it, lay it on your top three hair, man, hair, hair band from the 80s, and then we'll, uh, we'll That's sign how we're off. Out. Well, I'm not going to lay it on. I'm just going to say that Def Leppard never made it into the Hall of Fame, and I think Def Leppard deserves, even one, even if you're one hand. All right, do you want to make that our first induction to the BEE Hall of Fame, Fame, Def Leppard? 100%. We're going to get them followed the by, will, here. Followed will, by the Scorpions. And I will die on this hill. Cinderella was the legitimate heir as a blues band to the Rolling Stones. Unfortunately, they got marketed as a hair band, so they got swept out when Pearl Jam and Nirvana showed up, and the Rolling Stones just outlived everyone they thought. But Cinderella is that good of a blues band. I'm sorry, guys. I was born... Damn, Chuck. I was born in December of 89, so I just have... Nothing to add to this conversation. You can go your own way. (laughs) (laughs) All right, guys. Uh, Kirk, appreciate you being with us from Nantucket. If y'all enjoyed this show, make sure to share it with a friend, share it on LinkedIn, share it on Twitter, and we will catch y'all next week. Peace.